there, Internet. I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And this is I Will Fight You, a podcast where we've been turning opinion into stone cold facts since 1986. Today's fact, and this is going to be hot and fresh for you because I just wrote it, changing <laughs> the medium changes the act structure and changing the act structure changes the meaning. Because I get really mad about Into the Woods. <laughs> we are going to be talking about Into the Woods, which originated as a 1987 musical. Music and lyrics are by Stephen Sondheim, book by, I hope I'm pronouncing James Lapine, seems correct. But it was also adapted into a live action adaptation with Disney at the helm in 2014. So we're going to be talking about that, too, because... I imagine that went well. <laughs> uh, it's just, honestly, it's 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 such a waste of so many actors. They really went for, like, a star f***ing cast. Agony's fun in it. I'll give it that. Agony is very good in it. We'll get there, though. But the big thing is that this is sort of one of my go-to examples of how different act structure becomes when you change the medium of a story. If it is written for one thing and you adapt it into something else, there's a lot of stuff that has to change in order to keep the integrity of the piece, and the Disney adaptation did not really take that into account. I've seen Into the Woods a lot. I really like Stephen Sondheim. I haven't seen the full scope of his work, but I really enjoy everything I have. And this is something, because I like fairy tales a lot, this really keys into my specific interests. Mac, you said you'd seen a lot of, you'd seen this over and over, like, or at least several times, right? The first time I saw it was like a stage show done by a local theater. The old town mm. players of Vincennes, Indiana. But then I, because I was like, I really like this, actually. And then I bought the CD at Walmart. And then I watched it several times once I found it on the internet. As a child, there was an Angel Fire page that had it. Nice. It was the slowest loading thing in the world. And then I've seen it since then a bunch of times. I remember the first time I saw the movie, I watched it with you. Oh, yeah. oh no. But I've seen that again, just because I honestly really like the agony scene, but that's about what I like. Yeah. So I've seen it a lot. I forgot we were doing this, so I just rewatched it last night, but I only made it like halfway through before I fell asleep. But, you know. But I know it enough that I can talk about it. It's like this and Tenth Kingdom were a lot of my fairy tale obsession with my childhood. Oh, that tracks. That tracks. Was this your first time, Kit? Yeah. Annie said I want to do Into the Woods. And I was like, I have no exposure to Into the Woods. But the Disney movie looks like it's going to make me upset. So I found the Broadway recording, like a full video Broadway recording on YouTube. And I watched that instead. And aside from that, like my major emotional connection to Stephen Sondheim is when Dimension 20 did a modern day campaign set in New York. And there was a scene that took place unlike a Broadway theater, like a combat encounter. And at one point, the DM pulled out a Stephen Sondheim mini. And then Stephen Sondheim rolled initiative and the DM replaced it with a Stephen Sondheim mini that was dual wielding <laughs> broadswords. Nice. Yes. Incidentally, the Stephen Sondheim battle mode mini went for auction a little while ago, uh, like mm -hmm. late last year. And the auction ended at $3,412. Nice. <laughs> Stephen Sondheim also had a cameo in Glass Onion, for those of you who enjoy a Benoit yeah. Blanc mystery. <laughs> One of the really nice things about talking about Into the Woods is that there is actually a recording 
of the original Broadway cast that was professionally done, that's not just like a bootleg or something, that you can find and access fairly easily. It is from the American Playhouse series. It is a 1991 recording. The original Broadway cast is fantastic. One of the big highlights is that Bernadette Peters herself plays the witch and she's amazing. And she's amazing. Love a Bernadette Peters. Love a Bernadette Peters. Joanna Gleason plays the baker's wife and is like one of my favorite characters. It, it, oh. Here's the thing. Into the Woods is actually really, really good. The main problem is that Into the Woods was up for the Tonys in the same year as Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> ah, I see. <laughs> yeah. So much for that then. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So that didn't go so hot. I believe Joanna Gleason still managed to wrestle away the Best Actress Award. Uh, but, oh, it was... That was a rough award season. Somewhere Andrew Lloyd Webber sees... Yeah. Like Sarah deserved that. <laughs> Maybe not anymore. Not anymore, but at the time. <laughs> it won Best Original Score, Best Book of a Musical, and Best Performance by a Leading Actress in a Musical. It was up for... Best Musical, Best Direction, Best Performance by a Featured Actor, Best Choreography, Scenic Design, Costume Design, Lighting Design. But Phantom of the Opera was up that year. (laughs) (sighs) So, so much for that. Andy fucking dubs does it again. (laughs) So... I love this. I'm excited to get into it, but I do need to preface with some context here because my big thing here is I want to talk about act structure, and I could probably fill a whole episode with just getting into that shit because I definitely started outlining this in my head, and then I started falling down a well about Kisho Tenketsu for act structure, and then I surfaced about an hour later, and we can't get into that. That's not relevant. That would be a three-hour episode on its own, and we promised Lucas we would try not to do any more of those for a while. (laughs) Right. So, story structure. Basically, we'll be looking at film three-act structure and musical play two-act structure here are our two main things. I am personally more familiar with three-act structure from film because that was part of what I studied in college. In particular, my main reading materials were Sid Field's book on three-act structure. So we'll be using basically his model here as we go through these things. Three-act structure, essentially, it is how we tend to understand stories, particularly in film. It's not necessarily that we're saying that every story has to map to a three-act structure, simply that, at least for a Western audience, we tend to understand stories in these beats and tell them along similar lines. You can deviate from this, absolutely, and it can lead to spectacular results, but It's sort of in the same way that, as I alluded to earlier, Japanese storytelling structure tends to go into a four-act, which is subtly different. And that tends to be why, say, for instance, you watch a Miyazaki movie, like a Studio Ghibli film, and something about it feels a little different to you. A lot of that is going to be because you are noticing, even if you don't have the language for it, that the story structure is different. So... I'm just going to run down the act structure beats, and because it's easier to show by example, and I'm a basic bitch, I'm just going to map these out to Disney's Beauty and the Beast real quick. (laughs) 
Most people do Star Wars. <laughs> Most people do Star Wars, yes. But the thing about Star Wars is that Lucas was so interested in, like, doing the really quick f***ing shit about, like, Flash Gordon serials that it doesn't, I still feel like it doesn't totally map the way I'd like it to. But this is also a little bit of a cheat because Howard Ashman, the guy who did all these songs and lyrics for Beauty and the Beast, also came from a theatrical structure. So this is all sort of an Ouroboros <laughs> looping in on itself. <laughs> so... Act one in a screenplay tends to run about 30 pages, sets up the world of the story and introduces the main character. Within that, we have the beat of the inciting incident, which is the circumstance that brings the lead character to the forefront, the situation that emotionally involves the character in the story, the scene without where there would be no story for Beauty and the Beast. This is when Belle's father leaves for the science fair and does not return. Plot point one is where we move from act one into act two, which is sort of where the story really begins. It's where the character embarks on a new journey. This is the part in Beauty and the Beast where Belle decides upon arriving at the castle to take her father's place and become imprisoned in his stead. This is where she meets the beast. She discovers the enchanted castle. This is where everything kicks off for her. Act two is usually about 60 pages long. Your general screenplay is going to be like 90 to 120. So this is all estimates. But the important thing is that this is the largest chunk. This is the big swampy middle. It's confrontations, obstacles, tests of the character. It is defined by the middle point of the story, which is the midpoint. It divides act two. It spins the action into a different direction or a new paradigm. For Beauty and the Beast, this is a point where after Belle is accosted in the West Wing, she flees the castle only to return after the Beast saves her life and collapses. This changes the relationship between the characters for the rest of Act 2. Plot point two is our thing that transitions us from Act 2 into Act 3. It goes from conflict to resolution. It is often called the long, dark night of the soul. The hero overcomes obstacles, literally, metaphorically returns home to become renewed and to go into Act 3, punching and kicking. For Belle, this is when she returns home for real after discovering her father is sick and the beast releases her. This is the point in which Gaston discovers the mirror and decides to march onto the castle. Act three is where all of this shit hits the fan. It's all of our loose ends are tied up. This is where we start to understand how we can get closure. It goes pretty much from plot point two to the end of the screenplay. This is where Belle and her father escape. The castle servants defend the castle. Gaston and the beast square off. The beast is slain. Gaston falls. Belle breaks the curse. The beast turns into a less attractive dude and everyone <laughs> turns human again. <laughs> And this all culminates in our final scene where we reflect on the first scene, essentially, and understand that our characters have changed irrevocably. Here, it's where the prince and Belle dance surrounded by their nude servants and the stained glass from the opening narration is seen again. That's three act. It's worth noting that a guy called Blake Snyder then proceeded to compress this whole concept down uh, even further into basically Mad Libs that you can fill out to make a screenplay to the point where like, Save the Cat, the company now sells story structure software that you just plug all of your shit in. And now you've got your page counts on where exactly everything should happen. This is why uh, so many movies these days feel so incredibly samey. Like to the point you can just anticipate plot beats by virtue of just like having seen a movie before is because Save the Cat is such a cult in so many Hollywood writers rooms. It uh, could be better. Yeah, it's not great. No. That is how movies tend to work. 
theater works differently. Movies are born out of a theatrical tradition in the same way that television is born out of a radio tradition. But these things are not quite the same. I mean, there's always that kind of weird intangible, I'm seeing this live and the people are right there element that kind of creates a weird space for musicals where you can buy into things a lot more than you can when you're watching a movie because you're more part of that action. See Dear Evan Hansen. (laughs) (laughs) See any number of video essays on Dear Evan Hansen. Where all of the weird shit that the titular character gets up to is slightly more acceptable to write off when you are watching a play, but a movie just makes all that feel even worse. (laughs) (laughs) Two-act theatrical tradition, like musicals in particular, tend to be structured in two acts separated by an intermission. A lot of these plot points still kind of happen, but they are built around the greater idea instead, where instead of just You can't just take a movie, chop it up at the midpoint, put it in intermission, and have that still totally function. Because the acts tend to structure as a question and an answer or reflections of each other to the point where intermissions usually involve like a time skip and something that happens at the beginning of act two that reexamines the new normal that the characters have gone through and now start the story again. There's still dramatic momentum, but it doesn't really have the same kind of there is sort of a lull in the middle where these things sort of start to build and fall again. I actually found a great resource upon musical plot points on musicalwriters.com. For example, they have like their beats are the normal world, which is the opening image that defines everything. You have your inciting incident catalyst. You have your point of no return where they make the choice to go forward, to move forward. It also ushers in a greater opposition by the antagonist, larger obstacles to overcome. The midpoint is the lengthy section where your protagonist jumps the hurdles necessary to achieve the new super objective. This is usually where intermission begins and we sort of reset after the midpoint continues after intermission when we find out what changed, what has begun to overwhelm the protagonist, what's now made the protagonist's goal seem like a log shot. We have the point where everything goes to shit, our long dark night of the soul, and then we have our climax into resolution in the final challenge and our new normal in the closing image. Again, this is all fairly similar, but It's because we have the intermission acts and the two acts that separate and answer each other that kind of makes this whole thing function differently and feel different. It's also worth pointing out that a lot of this stuff is theory, not empirical truth. Yes. There's a lot of like wiggle room with regards to definitions here to the point where like Raiders of the Lost Ark, depending on who you ask, has between three and seven acts. Uh George Lucas in particular really likes serial work, so things kind of feel a little different there. And like, again, these are sort of just general guidelines for how story structure tends to function and trying to put words to the way that we intrinsically understand these things. Yeah. Yeah. It's more us working backwards to figure out why stories work than people deliberately, in a lot of cases, writing stories to fit that. Although, as mentioned, with Save the Cat, it's starting to work in the other direction and the results are weird. (laughs) Right. Now that we've got these two bits here, let's look it into the woods. (laughs) It's time to go. I hate to leave. I have to, though. (laughs) I've seen Into the Woods a lot. I most recently watched the Disney version. This is what most of my notes are. Y'all watch the 1991 version. That's great. So I guess we'll just sort of start going here and start sort of talking about how this functions. 
a lot of my notes are going to be geared towards the movie version, so I can tell you why it doesn't work. Mostly that's going to come up in the musical act too, though. Here is the way that Into the Woods functions. Into the Woods is like five or six different plots happening at the same time. <laughs> you have like three or four major fairy tales and two characters, the baker and the baker's wife, that weave in and out throughout these stories to try and collect key items from them so they can tell their own story. There's a lot happening here, and it's all very complicated to explain. A lot of people will say, be careful putting too many plots at the start. And Stephen Sondheim said, fuck you. I'm introducing five plots right away, <laughs> and they're all going to be in patter songs at first. Oh, Stephen Sondheim <laughs> loves a patter song. There is a lot of really complex work going on in order to make all of this make sense and to keep several through lines going. A lot of it relies on the fact that it is doing fairy tales that the audience will already yeah. be familiar with generally. Little Red Riding Hood, Cinderella. Jack and the Beanstalk. Rapunzel. To the point where it's actually very important where in the initial song, not only do you have a narrator to quickly catch you up with who people are and what they're doing and what they want, that like he introduces these other characters first that you already know, and then a childless baker and his wife to be like, all right, just work with me here. I also want to quickly point out that the baker and his wife in the version I watched, the filmed stage show, have this very fun, like, vaudeville husband and wife routine going on. It's very fun. <laughs> yeah. No, the baker and his wife are absolutely, like, the heart and soul of the story. And the two actors that originally performed the baker and his wife are fucking fantastic. They have such a good, like, back and forth chemistry with each other. Oh, yeah. In the Disney movie, the baker was played by James Corden. Uh-oh. Yeah. And the baker's wife was Emily Blunt. Emily Blunt, for the record, is like, she's funny. She can't do work in class. Sorry. <laughs> Emily Blunt is a great, like, she is a, she's a good actor. She just does not really have, like, the energy that the baker's wife yeah. role requires because the baker's wife is the driving force throughout the narrative. I would argue that the baker's wife is actually, like, the main character driving the plot. We have a narrator step onto the stage. He says, once upon a time, and we instantly get into the I want songs yep. for every single character. <laughs> at once. All at the same time. <laughs> at the same time. Because we have no time. I want yeah. to go to the festival. This is an incredibly complicated, like, 10 minute long opening number, and it's really, really good. <laughs> It is all the characters talking about what they wish and what they want. Do you know what you want? Is what you want really what you wish? Etc. We've got Cinderella. The poor girl's mother had died. We've got Jack and Jack trying to milk a cow named Milky White, but he's a little dumb because he's a child. I do want to know real quick. When they introduce the stepsisters, I will say a very good casting choice here in the live action version is they did, in fact, get Lucy Punch back good. to be an evil stepsister <laughs> again. Good. Oh, God. Good. Oh, God. <laughs> I forgot that. She played a single other character. <laughs> she has. She was one of the primary antagonists in the series of unfortunate events TV show they did. Was she also playing a pastiche of this wicked stepsister? Pretty much, yes. <laughs> she was a fashionable evil bitch. <laughs> Lucy Punch loves playing a wicked stepsister. <laughs> she loves it. Good for her. Good for her. There's something to be said for leaning into your casting. 
It's true. So we've got Cinderella. We've got Jack. We've got the baker and his wife. We've got Red Riding Hood, who has come in and is stuffing her face with a whole bunch of breads because... <gasps> goals. Goals, child. <laughs> and it's also important that you have a narrator yes. on stage. This is an actual person. The movie doesn't have a narrator. The movie just has a voiceover. Ugh. That doesn't work. Nope. Coward's option. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work with the <laughs> fucking structure. So we cut really quick about how everybody here wants something. They're probably going to have to go into the woods to get it. There is an incredible part where Bernadette Peters is the witch enters the baker and his wife's house to have kind of a rap about how his dad ate all her vegetables. The witch, by the way, is played by Bernadette Peters in the stage show. She is played by Meryl Streep in the movie. I mean, I understand why. <laughs> yes. But also... But Bernadette Peters is a really tough act to follow. Yeah. Even if you're Meryl Streep. From the beginning with the Disney version, you can tell that they're, like, cutting some things, switching some things around. There are some parts where, like, Cinderella's dad is just completely cut out of the adaptation, which I guess is kind of lame because it feels like it's another reinforcement about the ongoing theme of parents and children. But I guess Disney didn't necessarily want to have Cinderella's father be a negligent drunk in their version. <laughs> There's this bit with Red Riding Hood and the baker and his wife where Red is perpetually trying to steal bread and sweets and everything. And the wife is casually taking them back and giving them to her husband. But they actually have instead Emily Blunt Baker's wife is like, oh, darling. Oh, sweetheart. Just give her the bread. It's fine. Ugh. Ugh. She's such a little tot. Oh, that doesn't fucking work. Red is a thieving little glutton and we love that for her. Yeah. To the point where where Cinderella is doing this dramatic aria to summon birds to help her pick the lentils from the ashes, Red is like, and perhaps a sticky bun or four <laughs> and a few of those pies, please. Like, I love this child and she loves bread. I also love bread, Red. There's also parts where like they cut some of the narration and add narration elsewhere throughout this whole piece. And it starts to become apparent here where like Meryl Streep's witch, they cut some of the narration where the narrator is like quickly explaining what happened when you weren't watching that scene when we switched to one of the other protagonists. So they do it all in one take and it makes Meryl Streep's witch feel like she's really eager to get to the point of this because there's no cutaway to say like, and then also she told them about how the baker had a sister or something, which is like, it just seems like a waste of a Meryl Streep. It does. The first song, the Into the Woods song, it sets up. You know how this goes, basically. Cinderella is not allowed to go to the ball. Jack is sent off to market with Milky White the cow, who is cow as white as milk, by the way. Keep that in your pocket. Red Riding Hood goes off to give some sweets that she may not eat to her granny in the woods. The baker and his wife are sent off by the witch to on a quest to go find four magical items. The cow is white as milk. The cape is red as blood. The hair is yellow as corn. The slipper is pure as gold. If they get the witch these items in three days time, they will be able to have a child because the witch cursed the family and she can undo that when she wants. But like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, it's worth noting that she specifically <laughs> cursed the baker's balls. There are repeated like physical motions towards the balls. Yeah, she's got a whole staff. She points exactly where she gave the curse. Yeah, she put the curse in exactly one spot. 
<laughs> I laid a little spell on him. You too, son, that your family tree would always be a barren one. And also her garden looks great. So everybody gathers up all their things. They go into the woods. The baker demands that his wife stay home because the spell is on his house, whereas the baker's wife argues, no, we're married. This is our house. We should work together. And the baker's like, no, never. <laughs> they have this thing in the adaptation where, like, they cut a lot of stuff that the play directly does with the baker and his father. And in the process, the way they try to bring it in instead is to give James Corden expanded sequences of spoken lines <sighs> about how he is mad at his father for starting this whole mess and abandoned him or something, something. I don't want to watch James Corden be mad at his dad. No, no, no. Nobody does. This musical already has enough men being mad at their dads. <laughs> Film in general has enough men being mad at their dads. Yeah. I don't want to be a doctor like you, dad. <laughs> I can't live your life, dad. So we shift from there into our next musical number, which is Ask the Tree, which is a fairly small little number. Cinderella at the grave. It is Cinderella going to her mother's tree where she is buried because that is part of many versions of this original thing. Asking her mother to let her go to the ball because she just wants to go to the ball. She wants to go to the King's Festival. She gets a very pretty dress from the tree. It falls out of the tree. It falls it out does. of the tree is it what does. happens. <laughs> this is just how it goes. I was curious whether like in the Disney adaptation, whether they like tweaked any of this to be closer to like the Disney versions of each of these stories. No, actually. Weird. Most of these hew fairly close. There are definitely some sanitizations, but overall, they actually hew fairly close to the story structure from these. I would say the biggest part that diverts is Rapunzel, but they don't really try to inject some kind of like the Flynn Rider stuff or anything. It's mostly just that Rapunzel is a bit more of a sympathetic character in this. But no, Cinderella's mother is buried in a tree. The dress falls from the tree. The big difference here is that it's Anna Kendrick playing Cinderella and she's pretty. <laughs> she's pretty. Hi. Hi, Anna Kendrick. Hi. Hi, Anna Kendrick. I'm gay. Yes. This is where we meet our first big digression. We cut to Little Red Riding Hood going into the woods. This is our first major fairy tale plot. It will be resolved fairly early on in Act One. And Red meets a wolf. Baby Mac thought the wolf was the hottest guy in the world. Also, he's anatomically correct. <laughs> the YouTube video was quite low resolution, but I was pretty sure that the Broadway version, that wolf did have a dick. The wolf does have a dick. Yeah. He had a dick. The wolf has a bare chest mm -hmm. and a whole dick. He's wearing a leather jacket and nothing else. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But Baby Mac was like, <laughs> Baby Mac was like, ooh, evil creep. Yeah, I'm into that. The wolf is a role that is traditionally played by the same actor who plays Cinderella's prince. This is another one of those things where it is economically good in that you are using an actor to play multiple roles, but it is also thematically important in the kayfabe, kind of like what we talked about with the role of Mr. Darling and Captain Hook usually being played by the same actor. This is a musical that does not shy away from the fact that Red Riding Hood is often a story about a thinly veiled sexual awakening. Hence why the wolf has a dick. The wolf had his whole dick out in 1991. Yeah, that's hence why the wolf has his dick out. Yeah, <laughs> the lyrics are very much like talking about textually, he is singing a song about how much he wants to eat this child and gobble her up. 
It is a horny ass song, though. It's very horny. And now I have to explain to you guys what the live action version did. Oh, no. The movie version. I remember it's Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp? The movie version had Johnny Depp play the wolf. Isn't that a little on the nose? Yeah. 2014. Uh, Here's the thing. One of the things that when my friend Ben and I are talking about Into the Woods, we will often talk about how, like, first off, the whole thing with Red and the Wolf is usually a bit more palatable because traditionally Red is played by an adult, not an actual child. These things are slightly more palatable to watch because you know that this is an actual adult. They cast a child in, in the movie version. Oh, no. And then they put her opposite Johnny Depp. Really on the nose. Yeah, Johnny Depp does not have his whole dick out here. Well, thank God for that. (laughs) (laughs) They changed the wolf's design visually to make him look like a flim flammer selling watches on the corner. Yeah. So he's deceitful. He's tricky. He's trying to get you to buy a watch and stray from the path. However, they don't change the lyrics at all. Oh, no. Or the tone of the song. Okay, I'm saying oh no, not just because they didn't change the lyrics, but because I just saw the picture that Mackenzie has sent. I don't like this at all. Oh, oh, you found a picture of the wolf? Yep. <laughs> don't like it. I no. don't like it at all. Yep. No, no, no. And that's... Disney, you have so much money. You could have just done a CGI wolf. Yep, they could have just done a CGI wolf. This is one of those instances where I'm like, actually, no, I don't want practical effects. Just give me a, <laughs> give me a wolf that's not actually there, please. I think that's the only thing that would make this palatable to me. Yeah, but nope, it's Johnny Depp and his whole song. And he's definitely going full Johnny Depp in these songs. Oh, no. And he's like, I'm going to be thirsty. I'm going to be hungry while looking <laughs> at this actual child. Oh, boy. Like, I mean, I guess at least we don't have to have Johnny Depp sexually menace a child textually, but it's also missing the point of how this Red Riding Hood part is structured. And they know it. Yeah. Yeah, like there is value in having it be the it's exciting, but it's scary, but it's exciting, but it's scary, but it's exciting thing. Yeah. Red will sing a song later on about this. There's value in telling the story that way. Red will tell a song later on about this that directly talks about that. And it's not really the same thing when it's like, oh, Flim Flammer sold me a watch on the corner. Like there's even a version of this that's palatable (laughs) where the child is played by an actual child. I do think you would have to take Johnny Depp out of it, though, before it becomes palatable. (laughs) Absolutely. You know what? What if we just blanket rule take Johnny Depp out of it? Yeah. (laughs) Just, Just in general, where you would have inserted a Johnny Depp, don't. Don't. Have you considered? Don't. (laughs) One of the major ways that a lot of people were introduced to one of Stephen Sondheim's other works, Sweeney Todd, was with Johnny Depp and Helena Botham Carter. Yeah, Helena Botham Carter, another actress, British actress who just can't do working class. Can't do it. What if you just didn't have him? So we skip into that because we know what's going to happen there. And this is the part where instead we come up with the baker and his wife because the baker's wife has followed him because the baker is useless. He keeps forgetting all of the things that he has to get. He's not good at this at all. To be fair, if I'd heard that list once and never again, I would also just like forget which was which. It's true. Why didn't you write this down, bud? (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, the baker's wife just had this immediately. She's like, you don't remember? 
the cow is white as milk, the cape is red as blood, the hair is yellow as corn, the slipper is pure as gold. It's like it's a whole thing. We also have this bit where the baker is wearing his father's old hunting jacket. In the musical, he's just like, oh, hey, it's my father's old hunting jacket. And look in the pocket, I found some beans. Maybe they're like from the witch's garden. I don't know. They're just beans. And the special beans. You know, the beans. The beans. <laughs> In the movie version, it's like, oh, here is your father's hunting jacket. And he's like, I don't want that. How dare you bring it to me? Oh, my fucking God. My father. Oh, God. Shut up, James Corden. <laughs> this is the part where Jack meets the baker and his wife. And oh, there's this really great bit where they're kind of bickering back and forth, the baker and his wife. And the baker's wife grabs the baker's face, turns him towards the cow, and says, The cow is white as milk. <laughs> Emily Blunt doesn't actually sing that part, and it makes me sad. She is not as loud and cartoonish as the baker's wife role needs to be. <laughs> because the baker's wife here is the one that's like, pay, pay the boy, pay for the boy through the beans. What do we have? We have... We pay for the cow. What do we have? Oh, we have beans. Oh, beans. Be oh, no. Oh, no. Not our bean. Not our magic beans. <laughs> <laughs> like you can see her working through the con as she's doing it. And it's very fun. It's so good. The baker's wife is great. And she like at some point just kind of hits the baker to go along with it because he's the one who's like, wait, should we be doing this to a child? And she's like, yes. <laughs> yeah, should we be ripping off this small child? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Eventually they go for it. They pay Jack five quote unquote magic beans. There's this musical melody that you hear here when he does this big pantomime of depositing these beans that, of course, the actor on stage does not have into Jack's hand, where it plays a melody for each one he goes. Da, 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 da. And like, they leave one bean behind. That is a melody that repeats several times throughout the musical. It's called the bean theme. It is very, very important to making sure this whole thing works thematically to the point where it is actually inverted in one of the penultimate songs to show that the characters have learned a lesson. I just love that it's called the bean theme. I know, right? It's so important and it's bean theme. It's just the bean theme. It's a bean theme. There's even like... Uh, there's actually a whole sideways video specifically about the bean theme and like how the musical works that just says bean theme over and over again. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, bean theme. I feel like any essay that talks about this should bass boost bean theme. <laughs> <laughs> Lucas, don't bass boost bean theme. Don't do it. <laughs> don't do that to yourself. The theatrical adaptation does not have this bean theme bit here. It'll use that theme where it has to for the songs, but it does not attempt to, like, dramatically underscore this with any kind of melody that you need to remember later on. Ugh. He just throws beans at him. And then they also skip Jack's little goodbye song to his cow, which is too bad because it involves the line. It's like <laughs> with he's singing this very sad song. It's like, I hope that when I see you next, it won't be on a plate. That is very good. <laughs> Into the Woods is really funny, and, like, the movie in general does not really play the humor up at all. It plays it way more seriously to its detriment. Well, on the other hand, do you want to watch a movie of James Corden trying to be funny in Into the Woods? <sighs> God, no. I already tried to watch him be funny when he was Bustopher Jones. Ugh. <laughs> 
They also skip the baker's wife song here. The one about how the ends justify the beans? Maybe they're magic. It cuts that song. Why would you cut that song? It's the best pun in the whole play. The whole song leads up to the baker's wife explaining a Machiavellian outlook on fairy tale structure and then says, the ends justify, and then she points up because she has just thought of it, the beans. (laughs) It's really good. It's really good. And it's like, it's also just such a loss because that's basically the song that explains to you the entirety of the baker's wife's perspective on how to achieve your goal. And that's really important because she is the driving force for this narrative. I feel like Disney and an effort to make the baker's wife a less morally gray character just stripped out anything that made her interesting. They kind of did. Like, she has a little thing. It's like, well, if you won't do this for something... Won't you do it for me so we can have a child? And he's like, yeah, okay, honey. I'm James Corden. And maybe their magic is really, really good. They replace that song with time for James Corden to lay out more of his daddy grievances. Oh, for f**k's sake. Right. And this is a problem because here's another role that was entirely stripped from the adaptation, the mysterious old man. How do you do this movie without the mysterious old man? I don't know. You have a mysterious old man in this story who keeps appearing, gives strange, ominous portents, seems to help along characters with seemingly no motive on his own part, seems to have a history with the witch, is traditionally played by the same person who plays the narrator, again, thematically important. And he's not here. They undercut the main way that the plot of the baker and his father is explained in the story by cutting out the mysterious old man. And then they just have James Corden say more lines instead, which is not how a musical works. When someone has a really important feeling in a musical, they sing about it. (laughs) Guess they weren't going for that best original song Oscar this time around. (laughs) Luckily, no, they did not include an original song in this one. (laughs) That's good, because it would be a song about James Corden being mad as his dad. (laughs) It's true. Ugh. Yeah. (sighs) Okay. So... We do some quick cuts in the movie version to be like, oh, hey, here's Rapunzel's prince. Here's Rapunzel. They exist. Don't worry about it. The narrator is kind of here, too. Don't worry about it. Just keep that in mind for later. Unfortunately, Meryl Streep at no point ever has like a complete breakdown about how much she likes her daughter singing the way Bernadette Peters does, which like the 1991 version has Bernadette Peters appearing in like a stage box to do some lines and eventually like turning to one of the people, like one of the audience members and being like, that's my daughter. That's my daughter. (laughs) She's she's, she's so pretty. (laughs) So great. (laughs) Yeah, the filmed version actually has, like, the camera do a double take and spin around to one of the stage boxes <laughs> to where Bernadette <laughs> Peters is shouting, like, like Statler and Waldorf. And she's, like, right next to a kid who's, like, staring at her baffled. <laughs> like, he's not sure when she got there. <laughs> no one is. <laughs> They'll try to mimic this with, like, the witch just kind of being in trees a lot. That does not the same. No. It's not the same. It's really not. Okay, so we cut back to Red Riding Hood, and there's this really funny bit in the stage musical where she just looks at this whole situation with Granny, who is clearly a wolf right now, in her Granny's clothes and being like, oh dear, how uneasy I feel. (laughs) (laughs) This is a line. We know this is a line. (laughs) 
And I feel like, oh dear, how uneasy I feel is something that you've just said <laughs> a lot in your life. Probably. <laughs> I need you to understand that because I need you to understand that the, the movie version, she just says, oh dear, how uneasy I feel. Oh, boo. Yeah. <laughs> so we do this whole thing. We have the wolf. We have Red Riding Hood getting gobbled up. The baker's like, oh, no. Oh, no. Especially because earlier he did try to steal a cape from a child. Yeah, he did try to rob this child in the woods. And then she started crying. And then he came back and gave her the cape and then ran away again. And he was like, I just needed to make sure you really loved it. <laughs> She doesn't buy that, by the way. <laughs> Not for a second. So she gets gobbled up by the wolf. The baker shows up, takes the place of the woodcutter in the original story, cuts open the wolf. The movie version skips over the part where the baker and Red reappear and they're like, oh, let's fill him up with stones. <laughs> this will be fun. Which is too bad because it skips over exactly how vicious the granny is. <laughs> <laughs> Granny's killed a man. Granny has killed a man. Granny's happy to murder again. Granny will sew a wolf up with stones for funsies. Granny's a widow and you don't want to ask why. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, we just sort of like cut to the baker in the movie version walking out of the house and then Red catches up to him. And this is where we have this thing in movie adaptations where oftentimes they are cowards about musicals. And they don't like that musicals don't feel very realistic. So in the instance of, say, Red's song here about her experience with the wolf, where she's just sort of singing on stage, sort of to the audience, sort of to herself about what she has learned. Instead, this is a little girl singing to James Corden. Oh, boo. Yeah. Also, I don't want to listen to a little girl sing to James Corden about her sexual awakening. I just don't. Straight up. Straight up. Like, I have in my notes, like, do not saying to James Corden about your thinly veiled sexual awakening, I'm putting my foot down. <laughs> Honestly, I just don't want James Corden anywhere near anything. What if we just didn't have just a James Corden? Yeah. And like, the, because the thing is that like, this is a really important song because she's like, he made me feel excited, well, excited and scared. And then she ends with like, take extra care with strangers, even flowers have their dangers. And though scary is exciting, nice is different from good. That's that's one that actually is very important for anyone to remember. That's a ridiculously <laughs> yeah. important thing about this entire story. So now she gives her cape to the baker. They have one item. They have the cape as red as blood. Because she doesn't need one because her granny's going to make her a wolfskin cape. Yeah, granny's killed a man. The conspiracy brain part of me is like, well, yeah, I wonder why Disney wouldn't be totally down with the message, nice is different from good. No, I mean, they still have it. It's still an important thing. It's still something that's repeated later. It's just that she's singing it to James Corden. And that doesn't really work when a character is imparting, like, the lesson they've learned, you know? <laughs> I think they're just afraid of having characters just sing about things. Anyway, Cinderella's back. She has left the festival. She is pursued by the prince. Cinderella's prince is played by Chris Pine. She is hauling a surprising amount of ass considering the shoes she's wearing. I feel like they gave Cinderella's dress for Anna Kendrick in the adaptation, like a high-low skirt and maybe some shorts under there. <laughs> also, I do have to say that Chris Pine is Prince Charming. Yeah, yeah. 
That is correct. That's correct casting. Chris Pine is the guy who understands the assignment the most here. <laughs> Chris Pine hands it the f*** up in the movie version. He is... I don't have any notes for Anna Kendrick because I'm gay. I don't have any notes for Chris Pine because I am still bisexual, but also he really understands <laughs> what he's doing here. He knows what he's doing and he's happy to be doing it. Yeah. I would argue that he is probably the most knowing what he's doing in the film version. Agreed. And so we have the Cinderella song that it's like, he's a very nice prince, which we'll repeat a couple of times here. And it's cute because we have this bit where it's just like the baker's wife and Cinderella just trading gossip. And it's like, oh, so what are you doing out in the woods? Oh, my husband's breaking a spell. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> And then as Cinderella escapes from the ball and leaves the baker's wife, the baker's wife is like, oh, you have, sh oh, oh, you have slippers. You have, oh, those are gold. I need those shoes. <laughs> it's, I'm wondering if like the feeling I got from the stage show, the interaction between them was definitely like two strangers at a bus stop late at night. Like, we're going to chat because there's nobody else around. We do not know each other and neither of us quite knows what to say. Yeah, I would say that's about the right vibe, except a little muted, because while Anna Kendrick is doing her best, there's just no energy that you're getting from Emily Blunt here. Just nothing. Nothing. You're just getting nothing from her. And then also, like, they cut the reprise of A Very Nice Prince during the second night. So you don't have that continued, like, oh, we're here at the same bus stop. Hello. <laughs> I love this song because it is just gossiping because so much of the song is structured around the baker's wife prompting Cinderella to tell her more about the ball because it sounds so magical. And Cinderella's like, he has charm for a prince, I guess. <laughs> it was fine. We danced. In the second one, she's like, they have far too much food. <laughs> I do like the line, they have far too much food because it sounds like something a serving girl would say at an exactly. obscenely catered event. <laughs> it's very much like these people have too much money. This is far too opulent. Nobody's going to eat all this. This is all going in the trash. What is going on? Then in the stage musical, The Stroke of Midnight Rings, we hear that there is one midnight gone. In the movie, that's pretty much where this stops. Meryl Streep announces there is one midnight gone, and then we just sort of cut to dawn the next day. We cut out a whole song, First Midnight, which is done by the company, where everyone just sort of walks through the stage announcing lessons of the stories that they have learned, which will develop over the course of the musical, which is really too bad. I love that part so much. The song itself definitely has that feel of like walking home at 3 a.m. <laughs> with all the other people who should not be out this late. <laughs> Absolutely. Especially because you'll even come by with Cinderella's mother and the stepsisters that are just like talking about what they have learned about going to the ball and how they're not having any luck. Yeah, don't wear mauve to a ball is one of the lessons learned there. Or open your mouth. And then what happens is that in the stage musical, we simply have... Jack suddenly cutting in the next morning with Giants in the Sky, which is one of the big songs <laughs> from this. And it's really, really good. In the movie, we cut to the baker who is asleep under a tree. Jack arrives and <sighs> James Gordon is here to dumbly prompt Giants in the Sky to happen. Boo. 
because Jack has five <laughs> gold pieces. This little kid, by the way, belts out giants in the sky like fantastically. This kid's got some pipes. <laughs> There's this bit where he's like, I've got five gold pieces, James Corden. And he's like, <laughs> how did you come by five gold pieces? And it's like Jack essentially claps him on the shoulder. He's like, well, I'll tell you. <laughs> oh, so the bit from Monty Python. The bit from Monty Python, Lucas, please cut that in here. <laughs> like, that's how it feels. It's like, how did you come by five gold pieces? To which he answers, there are giants in the sky. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. Oh, I hate it. To their credit, they do keep the line about how Jack is held to a giant's breast and knows things now that he didn't know before. <laughs> yeah, you know all those pictures of kittens nestling in big naturals? Just picture that. That was Jack. That was Jack. Jack was the kitten. Jack was the kitten. Jack basically offers to give the baker five gold pieces for the cow. He does not have the cow right now because he gave it to the baker's wife earlier to take back to town. However, in all of the hubbub after one midnight was gone... The cow escaped. <laughs> cow is gone. Cows run surprisingly fast. <laughs> they do. This pure white cow in the middle of the woods. The cow was not pure white. In the movie version, it was uh, a white cow with black spots on his face and around his ears and around his feet. And that is not a white, pure white cow. That is not what that, that is. That is not a cow white as milk. That is no. a cow white as milk that's starting to go real bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'll also say that because they use a real cow, they lose a lot of the physical humor, which is the actors handling a large plastic cow prop with a handle. Oh, God. Yeah, it's really good, especially. <laughs> <laughs> there are bits later that I will bring up where just the, the use of the cow prop is very fucking good. <laughs> I love the cow prop so much. It's just a plastic cow on wheels. It's not even a big plastic cow on wheels. <laughs> it's not even a heavy cow. <laughs> it's maybe knee high. <laughs> but they're like, listen, you know this is a cow audience. And the audience is like, yeah, that's clearly a cow. Yeah, that's obviously a cow. <laughs> it's fine. It's a play. It's fine. <laughs> so after Jack basically says like, okay, you want more than five gold pieces? Keep those. I'll go get more treasure. That is when we cut to... The princes. There are two princes here. There are Cinderella's prince and Rapunzel's prince. Those are the only names that they have. They are brothers. And they are both pursuing a beautiful woman. <laughs> two different beautiful women. <laughs> I feel I should point out. They are each pursuing a beautiful woman. And they are basically the princiest princes to ever prince. <laughs> One of their lessons is like, the harder to hold, the better to have. Near is better than far, but it's not there. And they are all about the pursuit. And they have so many feelings about these women that they are pursuing that they have to sing about it. Agony is one of my favorite numbers in this whole musical. The movie version only has one agony. Boo. It only has this agony. It cuts out the second agony, which, again, undercuts the point of Act 2 for Into the Woods. But... It's a really good agony because, again, Chris Pine really understands the assignment. The guy who plays Rapunzel's Prince is also great. And they are throwing themselves dramatically against a waterfall singing this song. 
I looked up who was playing Rapunzel's prince and I was like, where do I know this guy from? And it turns out I don't know him from any of the other Disney movies that he was in. I know him from The Big Short where he played one of the dumbass mortgage brokers. Spectacular. <laughs> there is a point when they are singing agony. Like, where they rip their shirts off. One that cuts like a knife. Like, Chris Pine throws himself <laughs> against a waterfall opens his shirt because of how much he's feeling and then it cuts over to Rapunzel's prince who is clearly looking over and then quickly unbuttons his shirt and pulls it open too it's so good it's honestly the best part of the theatrical release it really really is like if you look at anything from the movie version of Into the Woods I strongly suggest you just look up Agony it is amazing they are wallowing in how manly they feel I gotta say, I think the D&D movie is gonna suck. Chris Pine as a horny bard is correct. That is yes. correct casting. <laughs> like, also, to Max's point about Chris Pine probably being the only one that really knows what he's supposed to be doing here, I swear to God, there is a bit where the lines are him talking about how great he is. How could any woman refuse him? It's like, you are everything maidens that wish for, then why know what I know? The girl must be mad. And like, <laughs> you know nothing of madness. There's this gesture that Chris Pine makes where he points to his forehead and then at the girl must be mad and then brushes his hands away as though it is just something that he cannot conceive at all. And I swear to God, Cinderella's Prince in the 1991 version does this exact same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so he did his homework. (laughs) I swear to God, Chris Pine must have done his homework here. (laughs) It is so good. The song not only, like, tells you about these characters, but it does also push the plot forward because the baker's wife does come across these princes having dramatic throes of agony about how much they want these ladies. And she does take an ogle. (laughs) But she does also hear them talk about this girl with hair as yellow as corn. Oh, I, I just, I love Agony so much. <laughs> Agony's so good. It's the song that always gets stuck in my head. So for like the next five days, I'm going to be singing Agony. And it's probably just going to be that line. It's probably just going to be yeah, Agony. It's going to be Agony over and over again. <laughs> they only did it once and they did it the most that they could. Anyway, we have a quick scene where the baker's wife comes upon Rapunzel's tower and is like, let down your hair to me. And Rapunzel's like, is that you, my prince? (laughs) And the baker's wife does this great thing. She just looks around and is like, uh, yes. (laughs) Emily Blunt tries to do this too. It doesn't quite work as well, but I appreciate her trying. At least they kept it in. At least they kept it in. She then tears off a whole bunch of Rapunzel's hair. (laughs) Just a huge lock of it. And, like, the prop for this in the stage show is just, like, basically a yellow feather boa. She even keeps slinging it around her neck like a boa. Which is, oh, that's hair that's gross. Don't. The problem is that, you know, in the movie version, the movie version has this whole problem with colors anyway, where everything is kind of, like, realistic colors. It's kind of washed out and blue, and everyone's, like, dressed in, Well, that is in, not like, hair yellow as corn, is it? It's just blonde. Nobody is dressed in, like, bright colors except for like red riding hood and even then she has this simple blue dress when she takes off the cape so she just sort of blends into the background no one here is dressed like they are part of a fairy tale 
<sighs> and so it's just blonde hair. It's just blonde hair. I think they cut this part in the movie. I don't quite recall when they have like, we have the cape and the cow. You have the cape. <laughs> Which the delivery on that in the stage version is so fucking good. <laughs> Joanna Eason is like, she absolutely deserved that fucking award that she wrestled from Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> Yeah, she's so good. She's so funny. Like, there is a part where the baker and his wife keep meeting back up and talking about how many items they have and the problems that they are having getting them. And it is just... And keeping them. Yeah. <laughs> the baker's wife does meet back up with Rapunzel during the second night after she has escaped from the ball. They don't have this in the movie. What they have instead is basically Cinderella runs and the baker's wife just tries to drive by, get her shoes, and she kicks her and runs away. <laughs> <laughs> and instead she just has a bit more screen time with cinderella's prince trying to give him wrong directions to where cinderella went and i understand that you're trying to set up just moments later on in the second act but like don't do it like this you're cutting out time between two female characters in the story and it cuts out the part where she talks about how they have far too much food which is an absolute tragedy to lose that line absolutely we also have a bit where the baker just kind of finds Milky White the cow wandering around in the woods instead of in the stage musical, we have a mysterious old man who brings in the cow and it's like, what are you going to do with this cow? You going to get a child? What are you going to do? What's your plan? Does the movie preserve the sort of thing that we've got going on with Cinderella in the stage show where like it's clear that Cinderella more than anything just wants to go to the festival? She doesn't necessarily want to get with the prince. She didn't go with the aim of getting with a prince. She just wanted to go to a party. They make the steps of the palace do all of the legwork for that one. Ugh. Yeah. Because some of that comes up in the second conversation with the baker's wife. Some of that comes up in One Midnight Gone when she talks about how just going to a party is not really the same thing as like dancing with a prince and maybe being courted by him. Ah, two numbers they cut. Okay. Yep. So they make Cinderella's big number do all of the legwork for that. <laughs> kind of sucks. The movie keeps trying to also convince me that James Corden and Emily Blunt have sexual chemistry. <laughs> If I could think of any two people who are, like, if there's less sexual chemistry between any two people. Yeah. Huh. Anyway, two midnights are gone. There's still no song about it. Boo. Instead, we add some scenes with Rapunzel's prince so we can see how in love he and Rapunzel are. And then they actually play out Meryl Streep blinding the prince right there with thorns. Of all the things that they just decided to put directly on camera, huh? Yeah, it was that one. And then this is where we have one of the witch's first songs where she confronts Rapunzel and essentially just manipulates her into saying that, no, no, you should stay with me. Oh, you're ashamed of me. Oh, I embarrass you. And turns it into this, like, on the surface, sweet little song about staying at home and being with your mother. Oh, I forgot that. Yeah. Stay with me is a good number, especially because it starts out with her talking about how children won't listen or what did I clearly say? All these sorts of things. The problem is that Meryl Streep is good here. She's doing her best. She can't belt out numbers like Bernadette Peters can, who can. But she also plays the witch like she's always having a bit of a laugh at someone else's expense. So it's hard to sell these manipulative mood swings during Stay With Me. Yeah, Bernadette Peters plays the witch as like just a genuinely screwed up person. <laughs> 
Oh, absolutely. It works really well. Yeah, God, she has one of the best line reads in like musical theater later on in act two. We cut to that. This is like one of the first of the witch's three songs that will be echoed here. It's also important that it uses the notes of the bean theme there. It's like, don't you know what's out there in the world? It's bum, 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 bum. It's it's the beans there. The beans are the beans are important. It's the bean theme. Always pay attention to the beans. Pay attention to the beans. That's also <laughs> me talking about my cat. <laughs> The beans are vitally important. <laughs> we cut back to Red Riding Hood, who now has a sweet ass wolf cape and a knife. <laughs> oh, <fuck> yeah. <laughs> Which is, you know. First thing she does is try to stab the baker. It's good. It's great. Red now has a cool cape and a knife. She meets up with Jack and then they have like this childish interaction of like, oh, I have this giant egg. I got it from a tree. I got it from a beanstalk. You did not. <laughs> and they i'm sorry for this they egg each other on oh boo i know had to be done it had to be done so jack goes up again to go basically because red has dared him to go back up the beanstalk and then we actually show here scenes of jack cutting the beanstalk and climbing back down and the giant falling because it's a high-budget movie and they got to put that stuff on screen so people know where the money went. I guess, which is like, I understand you wanting to put this on screen because you actually have the budget to do it. But like, this isn't really the important thing you should be spending your time on. We all know what happens. It's Jack and the Beanstalk. We know how this works. And now we cut to, in the movie version, this is actually one of the bits that I thought they did that really worked here. This is where we cut to Cinderella singing on the steps of the palace, which is a continuation of he's a very smart prince. But this is her basically singing about how the prince said pitch on the stairs to try and catch her. And then she lost a shoe there as the original story goes. What they do in the movie version is that instead of Cinderella singing this to the audience, which again, the movie is, you know, they're cowards. What we do instead is that while she still sings to herself about this, we actually have her running down the stairs getting caught in pitch, and then everything freezes. And she sings on the steps of the palace while on the steps of the palace as everything moves in hyper slow motion and Anna Kendrick paces around the stairs wondering what she's going to do about it. It looks really good. It works really well. Yeah, of all the like adaptation choices, that actually makes sense to do. Yeah, and it's something that actually like takes advantage of the fact that you're in a different medium and can do things differently. They changed some of the lyrics around there because she's not singing about you so much. She's singing about what am I going to do, but it still works really well. And also it just has some of like the lyrics from Sondheim that I think are some of the most clever ones in here. The rhymes in here are just really fun. <laughs> it's him and not you that is stuck in a stew in the goo. <laughs> I admire anyone who can rhyme goo with something in a way that doesn't feel cheap. <laughs> This is also good because this is where Cinderella is singing about the grand lesson that she has learned, which she did not learn anything. She still can't make a decision about what she wants. <laughs> she is so proud of herself being like, you know what your decision is. It is not to decide. You make it his problem. 
And so here is where we are almost done with act one of the stage show. This is where things get a little weird because the movie version starts to do things out of order because they felt that they knew how the rise and fall of action was supposed to go. Oh, boy. (laughs) Oh, God. What happens in the stage musical is that the baker and his wife have all four items because Cinderella, after she escapes from the palace, swaps her shoes with the baker's wife. The Beggar and His Wife have a really cute song earlier here in the stage musical, and you should go look at it, but it's it's not good in the movie. James Corden cannot be cute and flirty with Emily Blunt. It just doesn't work. Or anyone. Or anyone. Usually what we have here is the Baker and his wife resolve their thing with all of the items. We have a really big problem here because Milky White died earlier, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Milky White died and it was just like the plastic cow fell over. That's how you know that Milky White has died. There's there's a moo sound effect and the plastic cow just tips over. It kind of clatters a little on the stage. Also, when the old man gives Milky White back to the baker, he does the whole thing where he tries to lead it away and then he just visibly gives up and just lifts the cow by a handle on its back and runs off with it. It's so good. Ugh. Again, it's a funny show. (laughs) This show is at its funniest when it's like, you know what? This is a f***ing play. (laughs) We know you're all on board here. Maybe that's why the movie couldn't be funny. Man, probably. They took themselves way too seriously. Yeah, so Milky White had died and the baker's wife went to town to get a new cow and put flour on it to make it white. <laughs> the witch appears as midnight falls, and she's like, so where's my fucking cow? And they're like, here. She's like, they clearly dust the plastic cow with flour. <laughs> it's great. That cow doesn't look white as milk. <laughs> well, we had a white cow. And it's like, well, what did you do with it? It died. We buried it. So go get it. I'll bring it back to life. I'm magic. <laughs> Bernadette Peters' delivery on that is so f***ing good. (laughs) Oh my god. Like, Meryl Streep says it a bit more, like, matter-of-factly, so it doesn't hit quite as well, but god, it's the fact that Bernadette Peters is so fed up with everything here. Yeah, Bernadette Peters plays it like she is just so incredibly angry that the characters have forgotten. (laughs) She is literally a witch. (laughs) Jack and his mom reunite. Jack's mom is like, what happened? There was a tree. There was a beanstalk. It got cut down. What did you do? And Jack's like, I've got a magic harp. And she's like, oh, Jack, you've stolen too much. (laughs) But Jack also meets up with the baker and his wife, who now have to feed these magic items to the cow. Which the cow will eat, I guess? Yeah, so let's be clear. They have to feed a cloak, which, fair, cows are a bit like goats and that they eat things they shouldn't. Human hair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a shoe. And a shoe. And a shoe. Keep in mind, this is the gold slipper. It would yeah, actually be is... funnier if it was the glass slipper, because then you just got to feed this cow broken glass. <laughs> yeah, they feed the shoe to the cow. You have to feed a whole gold shoe to the cow. And then it's like, now milk it. And Jack's like, it's cool. Milky White only milks for me. I do forget half the time what the cow's gender is, but I definitely can do this. <laughs> Sorry, I just remembered the line in the beginning where they talk about we've no time to sit and dither while her withers wither with her. <laughs> Stephen Sondheim, you magnificent bastard. <laughs> um, yeah, you need a running start to say that one <laughs> and not trip over it. You really do. 
Do you think any of Stephen Sondheim's actors just threw a script at him? Surely at least once, right? <laughs> I feel like if anyone did it, it was Bernadette Peters. <laughs> they feed the items to the cow. The cow does not milk. And they're like, what did you do? And turns out, well, the witch can't have touched any of the magical objects. And that was her daughter's hair. <laughs> Oops. Oops. But instead, they're just like, okay, you want hair as yellow as corn. I've got an ear of corn. Just get, just take the corn husk out. <laughs> the corn silk out. Just take the corn silk. And lo and behold, it works. Oh, for fuck's sake. It's a fairy tale. This shit just happens. <laughs> I just love this weird little cul-de-sac in the scene. Right? Like, they set it up, it's a problem, and then, like, it's resolved within a weird couple of seconds. <laughs> yeah, well, like, within, like, 30 seconds, they've resolved it completely, and all it does is just, after the fact, explain why the witch couldn't go out and get these things herself. <laughs> yeah. So that's all it's there for. <laughs> It's just there to say, okay, now shut up. When Stephen Sondheim writes, he's like those programmers who don't use backspace. <laughs> <laughs> so the witch drinks this milk from the cow. And then like, there's this thing where she has come on a stage in this big cape, which is hiding the costume change that she's about to do because she comes out young Bernadette Peters in this diaphanous, like in this beautiful pink gown. <laughs> With cleavage. Yes, she's got titties again. <laughs> and then, congratulations, now they can have a baby. I have no longer cursed your balls. <laughs> I have uncursed your balls. I cast spell of uncurse your balls. <laughs> <laughs> and then what happens is that this is sort of the resolution of Act One. So what we do here is that we're just like, okay... Now let's wrap up these other stories real quick. We've got Jack and his mom right there. That's fine. They're taken care of. We already know what happened with Red. Let's check in on the princesses with their princes. Cinderella, they cut around. They're like, all right, you know how this whole thing goes with, with the shoes and everything. Whatever. However, this is the version where they cut off pieces of the stepsister's feet. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and every and the prince like leaves with his maimed bride, and then the tree goes, "That ain't the bitch." And he goes <laughs> back and tries again twice. They do this really funny pantomime bit where it's this big plastic horse, and so in order to be like, "Yes, we are riding the horse," they just bounce really hard on this plastic horse. And then when they go back, they just wheel the horse backwards. <laughs> Because they've just got like, they've got one of those like moving sidewalk areas of the stage to bring things in and out sometimes. So they're just doing that. And then they just roll it in reverse to, <laughs> to ride them really fast back. The horse does not change direction. Nope. <laughs> and so they do that twice until they put it on Cinderella. And then they drive by the tree and the tree's like, that's the one. <laughs> and then birds peck out the stepsister's eyes. Because it's got to happen. <laughs> Why does it have to happen? Well, there's birds, you see. We just gotta remind the audience that there's birds. It's important for Act 2. And then we sum up the entirety of Rapunzel's story of like, oh yeah, she was banished to a desert. She gave birth to twins. Then she found her husband who was wandering around being blind, cried into his eyes, which they do a very funny bit to do that here. <laughs> Yeah, the tears visibly sting when they hit. 
She like launches tears into his face, like uh-huh, 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 into each <laughs> eye. Then he can see again, and then they get married or something. And that takes a long time, right? They're just like, all right, you know how this goes. Don't worry about it. You don't really know how this goes because Rapunzel, we don't really talk about that much. But what they do instead in the movie version is they do Cinderella's thing first, then they do Rapunzel's thing. They don't play any of these as jokes. Oh. They never actually even pass the tree to hear that reprise of Cinderella at the tree. He just notices that there's blood in the shoe and then they just throw the stepsister off the horse. Oh. (laughs) I mean, I guess that could still be played as funny, but it's not quite the same, is it? No, because it feels like if you're doing it after the baker and his wife, this feels like kind of the triumphant summary of these other things. You're just like, we know how this goes. This is fun. Whereas you're doing this first so you can build up to the baker and his wife, I guess. They do the whole thing. Meryl Streep turns into a slightly younger Meryl Streep in a nice dress. And then she points at the baker's wife, who suddenly gets eight months pregnant. (laughs) Which feels like body horror to me. It is body horror. Yeah, no, that's that's terrifying. That's fucking horrible. Yeah, suddenly she is like massively pregnant and all of her organs have rearranged themselves. Ow. She didn't even get to like have sex with her husband to do that. At least in the movie, that's a great thing because it means she doesn't have to have sex with James Corden. You know, you raise a valid point. Yeah, I think I definitely prefer I cast Spell of Uncurse Your Balls, though. <laughs> Right? Because it was like, the problem was never with the baker's wife's womb. The baker's balls were cursed. Yeah. yeah I'm very leery of making content for D&D right now. But, you know, I, I do like the idea of just making a, a spell that's uncurse your balls. Right. <laughs> Although that also means that you have to create, it would have to be curse slash uncurse your balls. That's true. Ninth level spell. So... <laughs> What happens here is that this is basically the end of Act 1. Everybody sings a song about how everything is fine. Even the narrator is like, and everyone got what they wanted and everyone who was bad was punished for it. Everything was fine. They all sing about what they learned and how they got what they wanted by going out and getting it and not caring about the consequences. And that's (laughs) totally fine. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. Happy ever after. That's totally all we need. They do a bit of a reprise of Into the Woods about how, like, they went out, they didn't care about the consequences, they got what they wanted again. And while they're singing all the verses, like, to go to seek to find, the narrator pops in with to be continued. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think they put that in after they did some previews and people just left at intermission? (laughs) You know, that would not shock me because... A funny thing happened on the way to the forum. They actually only added the opening number Comedy Tonight after a couple of performances, which is wild because that's one of the most like enduring pieces from that entire musical. I mean, I was watching this and I was it got to the intermission and I was like, I wonder how many people just left. Yeah, I wonder how many people thought it was over and just went. <laughs> and like, this is something that like John and I will talk about. It's like, if you're going to adapt into the woods and you're not going to give the second act the whole room to breathe, maybe you should just make the first act. And, you know, you'll miss out on the whole point of the story. But at least, you know, you've told a complete story there. Yeah. So that 
According to like musical act structure, that is act one. That is where the intermission is. Act two will begin with a time skip where we have a new normal and we learn that things don't quite work out the way people wanted them to. Act two is all about the consequences of your actions and dealing with what you did to get what you want and whether or not it was actually what you needed. What this does in the movie version is essentially it says, okay, that was acts one and two. So wait, so they cram the entire back half of the play into 30 pages? Essentially, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. It's a really long act three. It doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. It gives all the breathing time to the first half of Into the Woods, and then the movie just kind of says, well, the rest of this isn't really all that important. Jesus. Yeah. Because what the movie does is that it doesn't have a, the song Happy Ever After or anything like that. There's no reprise of Into the Woods. There's nothing like that. It just has all of the characters clapping as Cinderella and the prince are wed and arrive at the castle. Everyone's at the castle. Everyone's doing great. There is a funny sight gag where Cinderella is waving at the audience as the carriage goes by. She sees the baker's wife in the crowd and gives her a special wave. And the baker's wife is like, thanks for the slipper, and points at the baby she's holding. And Anna Kendrick <laughs> has this frozen face of like, wait, what? <laughs> okay, that, that almost makes the whole thing worth it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good bit. That said, I can see Anna Kendrick doing that face in a lot of other movies. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily have to be here. So in the stage show, Act 2 starts with a reprise of Into the Woods, of the characters in their starting positions with like, once upon a time, what is it? It's like once upon a time again or once upon a time later. I think it's once upon a time later. Yeah. Yeah. Where we find out that Cinderella is having a nice time with the prince, but she feels like she doesn't quite know what she's doing here. And she's not really sure this is what she actually wanted the whole time because she mostly wanted to go to a party. Jack is still not happy because now that he has experienced life in the sky and the adventure there, he's not sure he can return to this normal, especially even though his family is wealthy now, it's not really made him happy. The baker and his wife have a baby, but now there's a whole host of other problems like, how do you raise a baby? How do you be a parent? <laughs> this house is really small for a baby plus two people. <laughs> we should probably move. The witch still lives next door. <laughs> still lives next door and now she's just always flouncing about pointing out her cleavage <laughs> Bernadette Peters does have a costume change for act two with this new like evil enchantress gown and mwah, it's good <laughs> it's so good it's so good and then what happens is that immediately there is a giant earthquake as people believe they later discover that this is the giant's wife whoopsie yeah, Jack kind of killed her husband, and she might be a little upset about that. Hey, remember how we were talking about how you just go out and get what you want and damn the consequences? Hey, look, it's the consequences. <laughs> Act one is f***ing around. Act two is finding out. <laughs> what happens instead in the movie is that, like, we don't really have this time change. We don't have a soft reset of anything. They're just all at the castle, and then there's an earthquake, and they're like, Oh, that seems bad. 
everyone go back to your homes. And the narrator, who is still a voiceover, is like, and then they all went back into the woods. Boo. But the paths were different and they tried to get back to the village, but everything was different. The characters try to go back home in the second act. The idea is that they are leaving home again and things have changed. The goal can't be to get home from here. That doesn't work. I don't like this. <laughs> You've been making that quite clear. <laughs> so what we have in the stage musical is we have sort of our new into the woods is that there is the earthquake. There is a giant. The witch is like, there is a giant problem here. We are going to be squished. Something needs to happen. Cinderella's like, oh my god, I need to leave. I need to see if my mother's grave is okay. Something big just happened. Also, what an excuse to sneak out and not be a princess. <laughs> and Jack is like, oh no, oh shit, I should go see what's up with this. Red is like, my mother is uh, gone and I have to move in with Granny now. Yeah, also my house isn't there anymore. My house isn't there anymore. I have to go move in with my grandma. Okay, my grandma will murder anybody who looks at me wrong. <laughs> Damn, grandma. So the baker and his wife have to go to investigate this big problem, and they also want to escort Red to go to her granny. And so everyone goes back into the woods, and I really like this version of it because it is so much more hesitant. The woods are much more dangerous now, and while they were confident before... And like excited, setting out on a new journey, they're like, I don't know what's happening now. This is different. This is frightening. When they're using all of like their verbs of like to go to seek to find, they are hesitant. It's really good. So this part is there is a lot more that happens in between songs and the movie diverges significantly. So you guys are going to have to help me fill in how the stage musical works, because like some of this stuff goes out of order. Okay. So in the movie, what happens is that the baker and his wife happen upon Red just randomly sitting with a suitcase in the middle of the woods because she can't find her granny. And while they're talking about this, in comes Cinderella's family and the steward to talk about how the castle is just destroyed now, which is weird because it feels like they just kind of came from there. So the timing is very strange. You do still have the royal family showing up and saying that the castle was destroyed, but it's also been some time since they were at the castle. So that tracks. Yeah. Then we immediately hum with the arrival of the giantess, who is basically saying like, hey, so Jack killed my husband. I want to eat this kid. <laughs> Bring me the horrible child so I may murder him. <laughs> Bring me the horrible child I held to my giant breast. <laughs> the witch and Jack's mother just sort of appear here and they're like, holy shit, what is wrong with you? <laughs> the witch is like, all right, just give her the kid. The witch is immediately the voice of, like, give the child to the giant angry lady. He has it coming. <laughs> and they're like, wait a minute, we shouldn't give a child to an angry giant lady, right? That feels like morally bad, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Bernadette Peters does a very good job of playing the witch as like, well, what's your idea? And nobody else has any ideas. They just don't like her idea. Yeah. Is this the part where the narrator yeah. pops in? or? Oh, God, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, the narrator pops in and everybody's like, wait, and they all turn and they gesture to him and they go, here you go, giantess, have this guy. The, the narrator keeps popping in <laughs> with things like the giantess is very nearsighted. She can't tell if Jack is among the group. He keeps popping in with these pieces of information until finally they just turn to him and go, hey, are you going to help? <laughs> yeah, because he was like, 
<laughs> now, what you have to understand is that these are people who are not used to making decisions for themselves. <laughs> They're not used to making choices. And the thing is that the narrator is always standing like outside of the stage. He is standing very close to the front of stage. He is like off to the side near the awning, typically. And then it's just that fact that everybody suddenly acknowledges the narrator exists and they're like, <laughs> why don't we tell her that that's Jack? It's not dissimilar to that scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail where the, the guy's doing like the documentary bit and then the knight comes along and kills him. Yeah. <laughs> now this is what they did. <laughs> And the narrator is like, wait a minute. No, 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 don't do this. Don't do this. You need a narrator. You need someone to tell the story who is outside the narrative. And Bernadette <laughs> Peters has this incredible delivery. <laughs> she's examining a nail and she's like, some of us don't like the way you've been telling it. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> and he's pleading for his life and saying, no, if you kill me, you won't know how the story ends. Which is important. The movie does not have a physical narrator at all. It doesn't even have the narrator's other role, the mysterious old man, who, by the way, was revealed to be Jack's father trying to undo the curse. And then he just died after the curse was lifted. Don't worry, he'll be fine. He'll be back. So they feed the narrator. And the great thing about this is that, like, they come up with a plan and then immediately chicken out on the plan. They're like, oh, yeah, we'll just feed the narrator to the giantess. And they're like, actually, no, let's not do that. And the witch is like, nope, we're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Again, these are people who are not used to making choices. <laughs> so she's like, yeah, no, here he is. Here's Jack. And the giant eats him. And then she's like, I don't think that was Jack. Yeah, in the stage show, it's like she picks him up, goes, oh, that's not him, and then just drops him. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes, splat. <laughs> you don't see the splat. You do hear the splat. <laughs> Instead, the movie just cuts immediately to the next plan for how they are going to solve problems, which is not really a plan at all. It is Jack's mother appearing and yelling at the giant's wife about how this is my son. How dare you? I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody panics. Which is an interesting development from earlier in the play where Jack's mom and the baker's wife come across each other and Jack's mom is lamenting Jack's bullshit. And the, <laughs> she says, be careful with your own children. And the baker's wife says, oh, I don't have any children. And then Jack's mom was like, that would be good, too. <laughs> Just staring off into the middle distance. <laughs> like she says it dreamily. <laughs> but of course, then Jack got her a bunch of money, so. Jack's mom is like, I will beat the shit out of you. And then they're like, oh my God, stop, stop. Sh 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 just don't, just don't. Why are you antagonizing her? Don't antagonize her. Until the steward who has been carrying around this giant staff with big knob on the end for the whole thing hits her. Hard. Hard. And this is the one of the few elements of realism in the play, because it turns out when you crack someone really hard over the head, uh, that tends not to go well for them. Yeah. And Jack's mother is dead. And they're like, how could you do that? And the steward is like, I was just thinking of the greater good. It's a bit weird in the stage show, because like they don't have Jack's mother like drop at any point. So she dies standing straight up. The implication is clearly that like she collapsed to the floor. But in terms of like where the actress physically is, the stage director just decided, no, we're not going to put her on the floor. She's just going to be standing up and die there. Yeah, she is just facing the audience. She is on the moving track of this set. So she will stand 
straight up until they basically use this moving track to roll her off set while someone sort of does the motion of closing her eyes. It's a little odd. What they do in the movie is, well, they can't just straight up show murder. Boo. So the steward pushes Jack's mother to the side and she falls and then that kills her somehow. Maybe it spears her onto a tree or she maybe hits her head or something long enough to like be like, take care of my boy to the baker or something. Boo. Cowards. It's important that the steward and the steward's like, oh, I didn't mean to. Boo. That's not how this works. No, the whole thing is that people are justifying actions they made in the heat of the moment. God damn it. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. Ah! So we have that. Cinderella's family leaves to go to somewhere else. It's better than here. Don't worry about it. We will find out later they never made it there. Then we come to one of the other major digressions here, which is Rapunzel and the witch. In the stage show, there is a point where the witch is hot again in the first act and comes to collect Rapunzel. And she's like, come with me. I'm young. I'm beautiful. We can be together now. And Rapunzel's like, no. You kept me in a tower. No, absolutely not. I want to stay here with my kids and and the guy who is the father of my kids. We haven't gotten married yet, but I did just cry his eyes back to life. So (laughs) that's kind of a commitment. And instead, what we have is like, In the stage show, Rapunzel is sort of wandering and crying in the woods because she has gotten lost and the witch comes upon her. The movie kind of smushes these two scenes together. Rapunzel is back at the tower. The witch is like, oh, my God, Rapunzel, I found you. And she's like, who the hell are you? And she's like, I'm slightly younger Meryl Streep. (laughs) There is this bit where she's like, I don't understand. What's your problem? And she's like, well... You did lock me into a tower for 14 years, cut me off from all human contact, blinded my husband, banished me to a desert in the movie. It was a swamp. And because of you, I'll never be happy. I'm kind of not equipped to exist in the world. (laughs) (laughs) And Bernadette Peters in the musical has this incredible bit where she just stands stock still, looks really awkward, and is just like... I was just trying to be a good mother. (laughs) (laughs) She knows this is bullshit. (laughs) She knows it as she's saying it. Mm -hmm. It's really, really fucking funny. And like in the movie, she kind of does that too. It kind of comes off a little like comedy, but it's most she's like, I was just trying to be a good mother. No, 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 no. No, no, no. You have to know how bullshit that line is. (laughs) And what happens here is that there is not a second reprise of agony in this movie. You know where that specific delivery of I was just trying to be a good mother comes from? The Bernadette Peters one? Oh, yeah? That's a stage mom talking. Ooh. (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's it. That's the kind of line delivery of someone who has been shoving their kids into commercials since they were six months old. (laughs) I was just trying to be a good mother. (laughs) Guarantee at least half of the people in that show have heard that line from a mother. (laughs) From their mother. (laughs) 
Hot damn. No, that's exactly what that is. You're right. Because we don't have a second agony, we'll get to that in a second. Instead, Rapunzel's prince shows up on a horse and he's like, Rapunzel, my love, let's go. And then she gets on the horse and leaves. And then they both go. They're not in the show anymore. They're just, that's, yeah. They get their own little happy ever after. In the movie? That's not how the princes work. Yeah, no, that isn't, no. <laughs> no. It goes way worse for Rapunzel on the stage show. <laughs> yep. Rapunzel just sort of gets crushed by a giant, by a tower, by a tree. She gets crushed. She dies. We hear a scream, we hear a squish, and that's the end of Rapunzel. Yeah. And then the witch sings the witch's lament, which is another version of the song that she came out earlier, except instead of like, children won't listen, she's like, this is the world I meant. Couldn't you listen? And she sings like, oh, everything is awful. The world is terrible. I tried to protect you from it in a really awful way. <laughs> I put you in a fucking tower. <laughs> it seemed like a good idea at the time. It seemed a good idea at the time. Meryl Streep still sings this number, but it's just after Rapunzel leaves, not after finding out that her daughter is dead. The beat is a little gone. Yeah, it doesn't have quite the same impact, does it? No. Oh no, Agony's reprise was before Rapunzel and the Witch. Never mind. Okay. Well, anyway... Agony Reprise. We need to take a moment to talk about Agony Reprise. This is not present <laughs> in the movie, but I love it. <laughs> because Cinderella is just off in the woods. Meanwhile, the prince is out doing his own thing. He's just, he's just doing his own shit. So is his brother. Ostensibly, I think they're out here to hunt the giant. They're not going to do that, though. <laughs> no, they found more maidens. <laughs> This is a great number. This has some of my favorite lyrics in the whole show to the point where John and I will just sort of like recite them to each other sometimes with the back and forth between the princes because they have each found another beautiful maiden somewhere they can't get to her. <laughs> Snow White and Sleeping Beauty, respectively. Mm -hmm. It's like, I found a casket entirely of glass. No, it's unbreakable. Inside, don't ask it. A maiden, alas, just as unwakeable. There is a dwarf. It's a bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's no sicker than your thing about dwarves. Dwarfs. Dwarfs. <laughs> the, what I like about this, what I like about Agony Reprise a lot, it explores the same model of desire that you see get examined in stuff like Sandman, which is the problem of getting what you wanted is that you don't want it anymore. <laughs> it's very much like, oh, the princes got what they wanted, but they didn't really want to actually catch the maiden. They just wanted the chase. Yeah, which is why Prince Charming has three ex-wives in Fables. <laughs> Fables is a bit like this, but with more libertarianism. Uh, there's also this bit in the stage musical where when they're singing Agony, like I said, there's this bit where it's like, it's no sicker than your thing about dwarves. And then the other one says dwarfs, like with an F, and the other one corrects to dwarfs. <laughs> and I swear that's something that probably wasn't in the original songbook, but like the guy kept messing up the plural of dwarves enough. <laughs> they just put it in. Yeah. <laughs> and the best part is that they just hit that beat, they're like, dwarfs, dwarfs. And then immediately cut into, dwarves are very upsetting. Ugh, <laughs> oh, it's so good. And this is what tells you, like, oh, these princes are actually, you know, they just like chasing maidens. They're not actually interested in being, like, devoted husbands. They're not in this for the long run. No, to the point where, like, the last line is, instead of in the original Agony, which is, Agony, one that cuts like a knife, 
I must have her to wife. And the second act, they're like, ah, agony, one that cuts like a knife. And then they look at each other. Oh, well, back to my wife. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the princes are not good people in that regard. Do not have a relationship with them. (laughs) These guys suck. That's the point. These guys kind of suck. The point is that they suck. Rapunzel's prince should not get his own little happy ever after because he was the good one. This is why Chris Pine is like ideal casting. Chris Pine is at his best playing charming guys who kind of suck. Oh my god, (laughs) and he's so good at it this time. Like, (laughs) ugh. In fact, let's just get to that part because like, we cut back to the baker and his wife who are like, we are not going to be able to find Jack if we stay together. We should split apart. There's a bit where they bring in some of the things from the beginning of Act 2 of the stage musical where the baker's like, I don't know what to do with this baby. He keeps crying when I hold him. You should hold him. And she's like, oh, my God, will you just parent this child? And he's like, I'll do it when he's older. <laughs> but we hand off our baby to Red Riding Hood to look after her and sit right there. This will definitely be fine. They agree to count paces, walk in different directions, and come back to look for Jack because they are going nowhere with this. And the baker's wife, well, she counts paces and she finds someone. Loses count when she encounters Prince Charming. It's Prince Charming. It's Cinderella's Charming. And Prince Charming's like, hi. <laughs> so you're uh, you're alone in the woods, huh? She's like, we've met before. And he's like, yes, of course we have. Does not remember. (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) You're so brave to be alone in the woods. We should make out. And she's like, what? And he's like, what? (laughs) The thing that I kind of like about this with the Baker's Wife in the stage show is like, there is, of course, the, oh, this is a bad idea. I shouldn't be doing this. I'm married thing. But like, it's clear that she's into him and her concerns are all practical. Yeah. Because like earlier she was talking about like, you know, with Cinderella, she was always the one being like, oh, but princes are so charming and and, and handsome and, and powerful. And uh, yeah, I would definitely want a prince. So now she's got one for however long. And the thing is, is that like the way it's played afterwards, she doesn't regret it. Oh, no. She's like, I can have my husband and my baby and my side piece and it's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the song that she has after any moment is really great because she's like, why not both instead? That's the answer if you're clever. I have a babe for warmth and a baker for bread and a prince for whatever. <laughs> and I'm curious how this was handled in the movie, because from what you told me in the movie so far, they've just basically removed any morally gray element she had. The thing is that because these are in the lyrics, they couldn't really excise it that much. The baker's wife is less blatantly thirsty for the prince. Emily Blunt just does not sell as much her being like, so tell me about the prince. Is he cute? Is he charming? They say that he's charming. And because they don't have the second, he's a very nice prince bit with Cinderella, you don't have her pushing for more stories again and going and, 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 and living vicariously through Cinderella. What you have here is that she is far more reluctant, but she is still extremely horny because Chris Pine is firing on all cylinders here. You know, that that's fair. That is fair. <laughs> yeah. So it's a lot more reluctant. And the way that she handles it afterwards is more conflicted than the baker's wife trying to figure out how she's going to, like, work this into her fundamental makeup as a person. 
and how she's going to carry on with that. The beggar's wife seems more concerned about, oh, no, I did an infidelity. And in the, in the stage musical, she's more like, oh, I did an infidelity. Do I <laughs> want to keep doing this? What do I do with this? Hmm. I really like Chris Pine's performance here in any moment because the way that they do this is like the baker's wife, it is structured so that she gives a rebuttal and then the prince turns that rebuttal into something else to be sultry about. And they do that with Chris Pine turning away as she's like, this is foolishness or something. And he turns away and he comes back firing on all cylinders, full seduction, like foolishness can happen in the woods once again, please. Like, he's like wrapping his arms around her. The kisses are very, very thirsty. <laughs> Chris Pine knows exactly what he's doing here. He gave the exact right performance. He is flawless. <laughs> Unfortunately, the rest of the movie. Unfortunately, the rest of the movie. Emily Blunt's outfit is far less disheveled. So you get the feeling that they really just did some like heavy makeouts. As opposed to in the stage show where, yeah, they they f***ed. They banged! Uh, <laughs> Baker's wife got it! <laughs> and she has a whole thing where she's like, okay, I got what I wanted. What do you do when you get what you wish for? Well, uh, you get hit by a falling tree. That's <laughs> what happens. Yeah. Emily Blunt does an okay take here. It doesn't really have the vivaciousness of what the role requires. But, you know, she does get hit by a tree or fall down a cliff or something and die afterwards because the baker's wife has to die. Kind of. So she dies. We will cut back really quickly to the baker finding Cinderella as he is wandering off with the tree over his mother's grave being gone. And he's like, oh, you look like the princess, but dirty. Oh, you're the princess. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> so Cinderella has joined the party. Blah, 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 blah. Now we cut back to Red, the baby, the baker, Cinderella. The baker's wife is gone. And now the witch is back and she found Jack. <laughs> and she's immediately like, okay, let's feed this kid to the giantess and this will be all over. Like that is going to solve all of our problems here. Anything else we do is prolonging this. Let's just feed the giant a boy. <laughs> and of course, the others just hem and they haw. So there's a great line and great delivery from Bernadette Peters here, which is, you're not good, you're not bad, you're just nice. Yeah, we have two songs back to back here. One of them is Your Fault, which is a very quick paced manic song where all of the characters start blaming each other for doing everything and trying to figure out whose fault this whole thing was. Because these are characters not used to making choices. They will not take responsibility for their actions. The movie slows this song's tempo down to its detriment, so the actors can all get their lines out. Boo. Which is too bad. And the other thing about this is that, like, the whole song is undercut by the fact that it is actually the very, like, fiddly notes in the background that underscore this whole thing is the bean theme played really fast. <laughs> Ooh. And that's great. I do still love that it's called the bean theme. I know, it's the bean theme. <laughs> There's even this bit, like, musically that I think about a lot that I want to highlight here real quick, which is that Jack has this bit, so it's your fault, no, it's your fault, and it wasn't mine at all. And that melody that he's singing there is specifically from the Happy Ever After song in the end of Act One, where everybody sings about what they learned and how everything is wrapped up and it's fine now. But we didn't have that in the movie. You lose that callback. It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And as soon as all of the characters realize that the person they can actually lay all the blame on here, that they want to lay all the blame on, is the witch, that's when we cut to the witch singing Last Midnight. In the movie version, they actually do this with Meryl Streep holding the baby for a little bit, which adds some interesting menace, and she does play the song a little bit more like a rocking lullaby for a bit before she hands the baby off for verse two, but... The menace and the, th the inherent threat of her holding the baby while singing the song feels a little bit oddly placed. It's not really doing anything important. But yeah, what Kit was talking about, there's this bit where the lyrics are like, Oh no, of course, you don't want to give Jack to the witch. It's only the thing that'll actually work here. Oh, you're so nice. You're not good. You're not bad. You're just nice. The follow-up to that being... I'm not nice. I'm not good. I'm just right. <laughs> I'm the witch. I'm the hitch. I'm what no one believes. <laughs> I'm the witch. You're the world. This part is so fucking good. Bernadette Peters is incredible in it. Meryl Streep does her best. <laughs> Again, like Meryl Streep's great. Bernadette Peters is an impossible act to follow in a musical. <laughs> just too powerful. <laughs> she does not have the singing power to carry out the notes the way Bernadette Peters is, and that's not necessarily her fault. Yeah, plus their acting styles are so entirely different. Very much so. But like, I love, I love, I love the fact that it's like, you're not good, you're not bad, you're just nice. It is such an important part of this story of people who are not taking responsibility for their actions, who just went out and got what they wanted and damn the consequences. And now they're like, oh, I don't want to deal with this. That seems like bad somehow, but I'm not actually going to do anything about it. I don't want to do anything bad, but doing things that are good is also hard. Exactly. So I'm just not going to do anything. I'm just going to complain about it and try to find someone else to blame for what happened. Also known as 80% of the human population. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of this song, the witch leaves. She basically just has some of the magic beans left and she just throws them around. And it's like, there, I lost the beans again, mom. You're going to punish me again? And she just kind of leaves the story. Yeah, Bernadette Peters just vanishing into smoke because she's like, you know what? Bye. Yeah. <laughs> In the movie, uh, they do do something here that I think works a little. What they have is that the witch basically melts into tar. She just becomes a big puddle of pitch. That is maybe one of the instances in which a thing they did to trim down the story works a little because it's a clean way to smooth something out and still make it feel kind of thematic because the field of pitch will come up in the climax. It's maybe the only time they did something that really functioned like that. Completely by accident, I'm sure. <sighs> kind of feels like it. Because here's one of the other problems with all of the stuff they cut from the rest of the show about the baker's relationship with his father and act two, how it has developed his relationship with his son trying to be a father and not knowing how to do it because he's scared shitless. Because at this point, we find out that the baker's wife is dead. The baker finally discovers this because Jack found it was a scarf in the movie. It's her shawl in the stage show. And then the baker's like, okay, great. The witch is gone. I don't know how to do this. You just take my baby? I'm leaving. In the stage show, he encounters his, the sort of like a ghost of his father. 
it's so weird that they cut this from the movie where he has nothing but shitty emotions about his father. <laughs> they cut this. James Corden encounters a ghost of his dad, and we only know it's a ghost of his dad because he greets him as his dad. And also, we saw a quick flashback when the witch was describing what happened with her special beans. So we know who that actor is, sort of. But he encounters a phantom and talks with him and is like, oh, I did it. I was selfish. I did it for me. Not like I was getting your mother a gift. He's like, why would you do that? And he's like, aren't you doing the same thing? You should be better than me. And then James Corden sits down and he has a little bit of a cry and then he just goes back. Why? Why? Why wouldn't they have his emotional turning point be a song and a movie that's a musical? It's a musical. Characters can't just have big emotional changes without singing about it. That's what the structure is for. That's what the medium is for. If you're not having songs, then you shouldn't have songs at all. Exactly. This is an important song. This is the baker's turning point. He sings a song that's a duet with the ghost of his father about parenthood and how messy and f***ed up it is and how you have to keep trying. No more is really, really good. And they just cut it. And James Corden has a cry and then just walks back to where the others are. F***'s sake. Just cowards they're cowards <laughs> and then to make matters worse what happens in the stage show is that everybody talks about how they're going to deal with the giant the baker even says like we must all think together and then they each contribute parts of this plan for how they're going to deal with the giant james Corden comes back and he says i have an idea i know what to do boo how dare you how dare you how dare you how dare you give all the good ideas to james Corden movie <laughs> They still have the bit where Cinderella meets back up with her birds, and then they tell her the hot goss about her husband, the prince. <laughs> and then they also tell her in the stage show, oh, you know that giant is? We can peck out her eyes. We've done it before. We'll do it again. We love pecking out eyes so <laughs> fucking much. Did anyone just say the word? We'll peck out anyone's eyes. We want to do it so fucking bad. <laughs> Cinderella, was somebody mean to you today? Can we peck out their eyes? We'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do it so. <laughs> we'll do it with no thought whatsoever. Please, please let us peck out somebody's eyes. All we need is an excuse, Cindy. <laughs> <gasps> And so, like, they go off to start enacting their plan because what they're going to do is they're basically going to uh, spread pitch or use the pitch that's already there from where the witch disappeared. They will catch the giant's shoes, then the birds will peck out her eyes, and then they'll, like, kill the giant or something. Yeah, this is where the smoothing out comes because to get the pitch, they have to say, oh, there's pitch in grandma's house. Why? <laughs> and then they have to go and get it. <laughs> So instead, everybody splits up to come up with something. Prince and Cinderella meet back up. They have essentially the same conversation in the movie and in the stage show. But in the movie, it doesn't really have, again, the same impact because it's basically just like, oh, so you cheated on me with the baker's wife. No, he cheated on her with the baker's wife. And <laughs> and he's courting another princess. He had a whole nother agony song. <laughs> Ah, Chris Prine is still dreamy as hell, though. He's incredibly <laughs> dreamy here. He absolutely understands every assignment. He is maybe the only one who delivers a correct similar line, which is like, I was taught to be charming, not sincere. Yeah, that's a good line. It's such a good line. 
What's great about the stage recording is that he says that and you can hear the audience go, ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Cinderella and her prince sort of recognize that, like, I still really like Cinderella's line here. It rhymes. It sounds musical, but it is not sung, which is like, my father's house with a nightmare. Life with you was a dream. Now I want something in between. I really like Cinderella finding her equilibrium here. After that's settled, we start to enact our plan for the giant. And this is a point where Cinderella and Red Riding Hood are working on things, and Jack and the baker are working on things up in a tree to get everything set up. And we have mirrored conversations here where Red Riding Hood starts to wonder, this is another person. This is another person that we're planning on killing, and I don't know if that's right. And meanwhile, Jack is like, oh, the steward killed my mom? I'll kill him. And the baker's like, do you really think killing more people is the solution here? (laughs) And meanwhile, Cinderella's trying to be like, well, no, killing people isn't great. But, well, we all kind of f***ed up here. This scene in the movie is so dark blue. Nothing stands out. Nothing pops. And I hate it. Boo. But like the song here is great. This is where we actually have a melodic inversion of the bean theme as the characters recognize their mistakes. It is straight up the line, people make mistakes. And I'm not hitting those notes right. It's hard to lead up to just from nothing else. But like, it is an inversion of the na 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 na. It's like an inversion of that bean theme, but going up instead as characters kind of complete their arcs and recognize, oh, we have to take we have to take responsibility for our actions. This is all fucked up and we don't know what we're doing. This isn't a clean story. We're just going to try to make it through. Witches can be right. Giants can be good. You decide what's right. You decide what's good. <sighs> it's a very important song and it does make me cry a little. Oh. And this is the part where the giant comes in. And the movie kind of does another, like, action-y climax here. Like, they spend a lot of time with this, and it's like, I I guess. But again, this isn't really the point of it. Yeah, the movie's over. Yeah. This is like at the end of The Bourne Identity, where, like, the movie's effectively over at the moment that he, like, confronts his old handler. But the fact that they put an action sequence after that, because this is an action movie and they need an action set piece, just kind of prolongs an ending that doesn't need it. Yeah, You Are Not Alone is like the emotional culmination here of this entire story. Again, the bean theme has been inverted. The bean theme. Bean theme. The bean theme has been inverted. This has been completed. But we still have to wrap things up. So they do an extended action sequence with the giant and the giantess dies. And here in the stage show, they do one more refrain of One Midnight Gone, where all of the dead characters walk back on stage and sort of sing and just sort of impart their final lessons. And the princes also show up with their new wives, their new princesses. (laughs) Naturally. Who are both very sleepy. According to Wikipedia, the royal family also says that they've starved to death. Yep. I don't remember that part. (laughs) Oh, it's like when you're going somewhere, know where you're going, know how to get there, and remember to pack enough food. Ah, okay. Yeah. And you can also tell that these characters, like anything that has happened to them that like affected their costuming has been changed now. They're now like back in sort of their original act two beginning costumes. Cinderella's family all had like sunglasses on to imply to the audience that they're blind and now they don't have those anymore. They're dead. Okay. (laughs) 
everyone just sort of stands there on stage as the four surviving characters stand in the front of the stage closer to the house. And they all talk about like, wait, what are we going to do now? Everyone is dead. And they're like, oh, well, maybe we'll move in with you. Maybe we'll be a family. And the beggar's wife like, uh, uh, sure. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> oh, no, my child's crying again. I don't know how to do this. <laughs> and you hear the baker's wife. And like she is standing and she kind of rolls onto the stage on that moving platform, just telling him to calm the child and sings a refrain of you are not alone. And it, it guts me. And it's like, calm the child, be both father and mother, tell him the story of what happened, you will know what to do. And he starts to basically repeat the narration from the very beginning of Once Upon a Time. In a faraway kingdom, there was Cinderella, there was Jack, and there was a childless baker and his wife. And over this narration, the ensemble starts singing a new version of The Witch's Lament, which is Children Will Listen. And it is like this beautiful song about like, be careful about the stories you tell people. Be careful of what you tell children. They will listen. They will take these things in. They will understand stories. And you have to understand what story you're telling them. And like the movie has the baker telling the story and it slowly pulls out the camera to go over the woods and the characters, you hear an ensemble doing Children Will Listen, but it's a voiceover and none of the four surviving characters are joining the ensemble. So it's not really like, it feels like it's kind of unnecessary to hear. Boo. Like it's not really important. What's even worse is that as the credits start rolling, that's when they do the final reprise of Into the Woods. Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's important, actually. It's important that the whole ensemble is singing the final reprise of Into the Woods because all of the lyrics are different now. Because they learned what they actually had to do. The, the lyrics are like, honor the giant, mind the witch. Like, you can't just take things, you have to think. Which is a complete reversal from the first time they did this. And they just put it over the credits. And I hate that because they're like, oh, you don't have to pay attention to this one. It's fine. Ugh. <sighs> and then, you know, they do the thing where they'll cut to Cinderella saying, I wish from the beginning of the movie, essentially, and that being like the end of it. And then they just play more full credits. But it's just it's it's very frustrating that it's like all of the things that they cut from this, they cram into the third act. They miss the point. They don't understand that the second act of this story is supposed to be answering the first act and showing a huge reflection of it. That's why the songs come back in that order. That's important. Ugh. Just I'm very upset. And there's so many like decent actors in this that it feels like it's wasting them, except Chris Pine. And to a lesser extent, Anna Kendrick. They got their full use out of Chris Pine, at least. They sure did. Yeah. Chris Pine knew what he was doing. Like, Into the Woods is so good, and it's wonderful, and it's important, and I love all the songs in it, and, like, I think about them a lot, and I think about the structure of it, and how Stephen Sondheim was able to weave in, like, seven different plots and make them all coherent, and make them all work, and the movie just kind of throws about half of that into the trash. The structure doesn't work if you pretend that the second act of the play is just the third act of the movie. It feels wrong. <sighs> Okay, I think I've I I, I I think I've got this out of my system now. <laughs> Is this like the James Joyce episode where you will never have to speak about this again? <laughs> oh, I probably will. <laughs> but I won't have to like worry as much about it. I can definitely just be like, here, listen to this. Listen to me yell. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't have to explain this to you again. You can just listen to this. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. Ugh.
I feel as though a weight has been lifted off my chest. Thank you for listening to me rant for like two hours. <laughs> it was good. Uh, yeah. Also, I don't have to watch the End of the Woods movie now. I mean, I wasn't gonna before, but now I really don't have to. Yeah, definitely look up the Agony version, though. Like, that is still worth it no matter what. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Again, Chris Pine knows exactly what he's doing. He's here to have fun. He's here to be a hot jerk. <laughs> <sighs> I think it's final fact time. Okay. I'm exhausted now. Let's do our final <laughs> facts. <laughs> Kit, what's your final fact? Those in our audience who are either writers or who want to be writers, just a quick note about structures like this. They're good if you're stuck. They're good if you get to a certain point in your story and you don't know what happens next. If you try to write to these structures from the start, you're going to end up with something that feels very samey, very bland, very paint by numbers, and very save the cat. So for the most part, apply them after the fact. Don't go into writing something with the assumption that you're going to have to like certain things happen on each page because otherwise your story's going to suck. <laughs> That's my final fact. Mac, what's your final fact? Mother said straight ahead not to delay or oh, be God. misled. I should have heeded her advice, but he seemed so nice. And his whole dick was out. And his whole dick was out. And his whole dick was out. <laughs> his whole dick was out. He took it out. He what? He took it out. Andy, what was your final fact? Musicals are incredibly important. They don't have to feel real. Because theater is often a vehicle by which we can be more real than real actually is by being fake as hell. <laughs> Let your characters sing and dance because they feel feelings a lot. Your audience will understand. <laughs> and of the ones who don't, you weren't going to win them over anyway. Nope. Yeah, f*** them. <sighs> okay. Okay, that's going to do it here for us for Into the Woods. Hopefully we have successfully proven the fact that changing the medium changes the act structure and changing the act structure changes the meaning. And if nothing else, I hope I have successfully convinced you to pick up Into the Woods sometime because I think it's a really fun show. It's on YouTube. It's on YouTube. Join us next time when we will be bringing back our editor and perennial guest, Lucas Brown, to talk about the 13th Warrior, which is another Beowulf, folks. <laughs> it's, all the kid episodes are just going to be Beowulfs. <laughs> <laughs> it's just Beowulfs from here on out. It's just Beowulfs all the way down. <laughs> With that, we will be proving the fact that... If your dudes rock hard enough, historical accuracy can go hang. In the meantime, or until then... I Will Fight You comes out every five weeks. You can find it wherever you download podcasts. It is edited by Lucas Brown of The Math of You. If you would like to support us, a like, rating, review, subscribe, comment, wherever you find our podcast is nice. Talk to me on whatever social medias are available at the time and tell us how much you like my friends. And I will pass that along to my friends because I like saying nice things about my friends. If you want to support us with money, that's also a nice thing to do. We are available at patreon.com slash the gem jam, where just at our dollar tier, you can get access to early episodes of I Will Fight You. At our $5 tier, you can get show notes for all of these episodes. And in other tiers, there's lots of other stuff available for other programs, Date Me Damn It and Gem Jammer. This should be announced by the time this episode comes out. So I got into an anthology. I am going to have my short story, Move Fast and Break Things, in an anthology over the summer called The Devil Who Loves Me by Grendel 
Bundle Press. So I will probably be plugging it more as we get closer to the release date. But yeah, I'm very excited. Wow, it really is Beowulf's all the way down. It's Beowulf's all the way down. Grendel Press. <laughs> so yeah, if you check out grendelpress.com, you can see probably some information on that anthology and some others. We're recording this five weeks in advance, so I actually have no idea what will be available on the website by the time this episode comes out. But yeah, check it out. Definitely check that out. Our social media stuff is still on Twitter at CRC Podcasts, but you can also reliably find stuff about us on our Discord, which we link to from our website and also our Twitter account, our website being crookedrussiancam.horse or crookedrussiancam.gay. And I'm sure when that goes live for Kit, they'll be posting that on the Discord as well so everybody can come see it. So, you know, look for us there, I guess. Join us next time when we'll be talking about another movie. (laughs) Until then, I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And we have fought you. Well, I didn't forget the final facts like last time, so that's good. We were all very frazzled by, like, three hours of exposure to three different versions of Romeo and Juliet. Those f***ing seals, man. Those f***ing seals, man. (laughs) 